Well, amen. If you'll take your Bibles this morning and join me in the sixth chapter of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter number six is where uh, we will find our text this morning. And uh, of course, uh, this uh, summer we have been preaching uh, a series that we've entitled The Great Chapters of the Bible. And as I was thinking, uh, perhaps I should have maybe titled it a little bit differently because uh, truthfully, every chapter of the Bible is great. Uh, so much great truth in, in every chapter. Maybe we should have titled it the most well-known chapters of the Bible or uh, something along those lines. I, I must tell you, the last time we were in this series, we preached out of Psalm 23, and it was a real struggle for me to skip over Psalm 90 and to skip over Psalm 119 and Psalm 139 and to skip over Ecclesiastes chapter number 12, Proverbs chapter number 3. I mean, just so many uh, great, great chapters in the Bible. And I felt led of the Lord to, uh, to, to come to Isaiah chapter number 6 this morning. And uh, I find Isaiah chapter number 6 to be one of the most uh, really incredible passages in all of Scripture. And I'd like for you, if you would, uh, to look upon it with me this morning. And if you have a copy of God's Word there, uh, look at chapter number 6 of the book of Isaiah and verse number 1. We'll begin reading there and we'll read down through verse number 8. For those of you that do not have a copy of the Bible with you, you'll find uh, the words listed here on the screen and you can follow along there. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter number 6 and verse number 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, with twain or two he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Father, we come into your presence this morning, much like Isaiah did all those years ago. Lord, we don't anticipate that we'll see a, a vision this morning like he did, but we do believe that we're going to hear from you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would empty our, our hearts and our minds of the cares of this world and the anxious elements that we all deal with from time to time. There may be a looming deadline or project at work or school. Uh, there may be a crisis in our home and in our family. There may be a, a doctor's appointment that is on the horizon that is somewhat a uh, thing to fear and dread. And we're asking, Lord, that you would help us to lay those things aside for just a few moments and that you would have opportunity to speak into our hearts that we not be filled with, again, the cares of this world, but that we would be filled with your word this morning. We do pray for Sister Harris who was removed from the service a moment ago, seemingly dealing with some health issue. We pray that you would help her through that. And again, we thank you for a, a church full of people who can pray and even those who can assist her during her moment of need. 
And again, Lord, meet with us here today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, from the very beginning of time, man has sought to, to know more and more about God. And questions like these are questions that men have asked throughout history. Where does God live? Where did he come from? What does he look like? And certainly the list could go on and on. The Bible begins, interestingly enough, by asserting the existence of God. We discover in Genesis chapter number one and verse number one that he was here before us and that it is because of him that we have all that we do and all that we enjoy. We can discern from Genesis chapter number one that God is omnipotent, that he is all-powerful, that he is even able to create things from absolutely nothing, from the very word of his mouth, the world and all of the things that we enjoy were formed we also discover in Genesis chapter number one that uh, the concept of a trinity where the Bible is, says about the situation there, it says that God is speaking, he said, let us make man in our image. Well, you wouldn't communicate that way. If you were going to make some, you'd say, well, I'm, I'm going to, or let me make this. And, and yet God is speaking, and he's speaking in the plural there. And, and of course, we, we see veiled references to the Trinity from the very first chapter of the Bible. As we continue reading God's word, we discover that God has a plan for mankind here on this earth. We discover that God uh, gives laws, and he gives commandments uh, to a specific nation of people that he uh, chose for himself, but, but I would say that perhaps nowhere in the Bible is, is God more clearly revealed. Uh, in some respects, when I read Isaiah chapter number six, I feel like it's, a, it's sort of a behind-the-scenes type of a look, or maybe we might say it this way, that it's sort of like in high definition, in, in which we're, we're seeing God in a, in a unique element. We're seeing him sitting on his throne, and we're, we're seeing the, uh, the attending angels that hover over him and that are there to minister to him night and day for all of history and even for all of eternity. Because of the complete picture that Isaiah gives us, it is considered, this chapter, the sixth chapter to me, is considered one of the great chapters in all of the Bible. Now the Bible is full of visions and revelations. I think we have to acknowledge that. God reveals himself to mankind over and over again in this way throughout the pages of scripture. And because Today, man is still a, a very sensual being. And when I say that, I mean the, the idea of sensual being pertaining to the senses. We, uh, we, we like to be able to see things with our own eyes. And we like to be able to hear things with our own ears. And to touch things with our own hands. And to uh, uh, smell things with our own noses. And, and, and you get the idea that, that if, it, if we cannot experience it with our senses, in many respects, we, we sort of wonder if it's even real, don't we? And, and, and so man has always been that way. And, and so even today, man still longs and craves this kind of, of interaction that I, Isaiah was privileged to enjoy here in Isaiah chapter number six. Man, man longs that type of an experience with God. In other words, if I, if I could just see God the way that Isaiah saw him, well, then I, would, then I would completely believe. I would have no doubts whatsoever, and I would do whatever it is that God asked me to do. If I could just have some type of vision, if I could just have some type of revelation, if I could see God in that way. Uh, man reads the encounters revealed in Scripture, and he wishes for a similar experience. It, in other words, if the thought is this, if Isaiah could get this clear of a glimpse of God on his, on his eternal throne, well then why can't I? 
What's wrong with me? Why, why can I not see God in this way? I want to remind you this morning that today, in the day and age in which we're living in, God has primarily chosen to reveal himself through his word, the Bible. Paul writes uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1 that the Jews, as a group of people, that they're the type of people that in order to believe, they demanded signs and they demanded wonders. And, that, and that's why the Bible's full of miracles. People being raised from the dead, people being restored uh, back to them, their sight or their hearing, or, or their ability to walk, uh, leprosy uh, being healed in a, in a moment through some miraculous event. And the Bible is full of those things, and we understand why. Because the Jews, as a group of people, uh, they were uh, obstinate in some, in some cases in that way. And, and, and so God ministered to them where they were. And then Paul writes that the, the Greeks, on the other hand, they, they weren't so interested in signs and wonders, all those things are nice, but really what impressed the Greeks was, uh, was, was intellect and, 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 and knowledge and, and superior wisdom in order for them to believe. In other words, if you could teach me something that I didn't know already, if you could introduce some new concept to me, well, that would be sufficient for me to, uh, to believe. And, and, and Paul writes that in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse number 22. But I want you to understand that, that in the day and age in which we're living, God has not chosen to reveal himself through these things. God is, God, God is not working through today through signs and wonders. And, and to be very honest and to be very frank, God is not working in this day and age through wisdom or uh, through knowledge or through superior intellect. In fact, here's how God is working. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27 and 28, that God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Not only has he not chosen the signs and wonders and the superior knowledge and intellect, but, but God has said, listen, instead I've chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught things that are. So the Bible is very clear. If, if, you don't, if you don't like this, well then you're gonna have to take that up with God because God has said, listen, in this period of time, here is how I'm going to work. Don't look, don't look for some, some vision or some revelation. Don't look for some, uh, some incredible miracle, some incredible sign or some incredible wonder. Don't even, don't even look for something deep and, and, and of superior wisdom and intellect. No, 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 I'm working through the foolish things and I'm working through the weak things. And, and, and here's why. God says, if I can use those things, that's a sign and wonder to itself. Because if God, now think about this, if God could use someone like Peter Folger. Now some of you don't know me that well. Some of you, you see me on Sunday morning only, and I, I don't know what you take away from that, but maybe, maybe just maybe you, you find me impressive. You don't know how pathetic I really am. You, and, 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 and maybe I'm surmising way too much. Maybe nobody in this room finds me impressive. I don't know. But I'm just simply saying, if you were to know me the way I know me, you would, you would give a, a really hard amen to this thought of God choosing the weak things and God choosing the foolish things. In, in order to do and, and to accomplish his work. You see, here's, here's what God knows. God knows a, a man because he created men. I mean, he knows, he knows, listen, he knows you better than you know yourself. God knows men, and, and he even tells us in this same text, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
that if a man could perform signs and wonders, or if a man could convince others through a superior intellect and knowledge, that man would automatically, he would automatically boast and glory in these things. He says that in 1 Corinthians 1.29. I mean, we're saying same text here in which God is telling you, here's how I work now. He says this, he says that no flesh should glory in his presence. So here's why God chooses the foolish things and the weak things. Because if he chooses those things, those people say, I don't know how God did it. He did it. It certainly wasn't in me. God stepped in there. God intervened and God did a work. But if, but if he uses someone who, who, who does have superior intellect and ability or someone who has some form of miracle working power, that man, he does that often enough and he begins to think about himself, hey, I'm pretty impressive. And God says, it doesn't work that way. I, I, don't, want, I don't want any flesh, I don't want any flesh glorying in my, in my presence. We're gonna come back to that in, in just a moment here. Paul wrote that Christ, listen, Christ Jesus, now think about this, get a hold of this. Christ Jesus, he is these things for us. He is signs and wonders. He is, he is wisdom. He is righteous. He is all of these things for us. In other words, I, I don't need to find these things in some man or some ministry. I find these things in the very person of Christ Jesus himself. Well, listen to what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse number 30. But of him, and again, same context here, of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Uh, in, in other words, you, you're not going to get miracles today. You're not going to get visions today. You're not going to get signs and wonders from God today. Here's what you're going to get. You're going to get something far better today. You get Jesus. You get Jesus Christ. And in him, in him is all of these things and even more. Uh, no man, listen, no man can glory in himself or in his abilities and talents. If a man is to glory today, if a man is to glory today, let him glory in Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. 1 Corinthians 1.31, finishing out this chapter, says that, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Now today we learn what we need to know about God from his word, the Bible. The experience of Isaiah is given to us, and by faith we can read it, and we can know God in a deeper and more meaningful way. It might seem, it might seem in some respects as if we're missing out. But, but really, here's what Peter had to say. Peter compared God's word, the revelation of God's word, to his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. You know what he said? He, he called God's word a more sure thing. You, you study that word sure, and you'll, and you'll find that it means stable, firm, or steadfast. In other words, Peter had one, two, three hour moment on the Mount of Transfiguration. That memory certainly would, would, would go with him throughout his, out, out his life of what he saw there that day. But here's, here's what he said. He said, but really, what, what we've been given in this book is more sure. Because I can, I can dive into this book anytime I want to. And when I do, when I do, I can see God in the pages of Scripture. And, and, and Peter literally said, under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, he said, this, this, is, this is more sure. This is more stable. This is more steadfast. He said in 2 Peter 1, verse number 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, comparing it to the Mount of Transfiguration. 
Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. So I want you to know something. You're not missing out. You're not missing out without these random visions and experiences. I mean, I'm thinking to myself as I was preparing for this, in the days of Isaiah, he is likely, he is likely one of the few, maybe the only one to experience something like this. I mean, you have millions of people alive on planet Earth at this point in time, and yet it seems as if Isaiah is one of the very few who is ushered into the presence of God and able to see this vision. And, 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 and so these ideas of visions and wonders, we say, well, that'd be nice to see that, but visions and wonders are not for everyone, but this book is for everyone. I can see God any time that I want to, and, and because Isaiah records this, this vision, this experience, um, through the writing of God's word, we, we all of us are able to get a glimpse of Isaiah's vision of God. And when a man or woman truly sees God, he sees God, whether it be in person or whether it be in the pages of scripture, he discovers these three truths that I want to share with you today. Number one, he discovers this. Number one is this, I, I believe we take from Isaiah 6 that God is more real to us at certain seasons than he is at others. God is more real to us at certain seasons than others. I, I want you to notice what, how he leads off this chapter and, and what the introduction to this vision is. Notice what he says in verse number one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne. I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I, I take from that as I read that first verse that there was something very, very moving about Uzziah's death. That, that, it, that it caused maybe the whole nation as a whole, but certainly it caused Isaiah to, to sit up and to, and to take notice of, of his own life and and, and of God and what God's plan was in this life and in this world. Uzziah was one of the great kings in Judah's history. He, he reigned, now think about this, he sat on the throne of, of the nation of Judah for 52 years. That's how long he was the king of the nation of Judah. And, and, and his reign rivaled the other great kings who served before and even after him. Under him, the nation of Judah was very, very strong militarily. Now, the Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 and verse number 14 about, about his, his reign that he prepared for them throughout all the host, shields and spears and helmets and habergens and bows and slings to cast stones. So, so Uzziah had not just an army, but he had a very prepared army. They had all of the resources that were necessary for them to feel comfortable by going into battle. And, and, and during, his, during his time as king, his, his name and his greatness had spread far and wide throughout the, throughout the earth. In fact, the Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles 26 and verse number 8 that his name spread abroad even to the entering in of Egypt. So, so, so even so far as Egypt, people knew who Uzziah was and, and there was some, some element of respect and reverence that was given to his name. However, however, at a late point in his life, he, the Bible says that he was lifted up with pride. And he took upon himself a position that was not his. If you were to look in the 26th chapter of the book of 2 Chronicles, you could learn of Uzziah's greatness and of the reign that he enjoyed, but you can also learn of his fall towards the end of his life. 
In fact, the Bible tells us that he, on a certain day, he invaded the priest's office. He was a king. He was not a priest. Those offices were separate. The priest did things that the king could not do, and the king did things that the priest was not able to do. But on this day, because his heart was lifted up with pride, King Uzziah went into the temple, and he took upon himself the the office of the priest, which was not his to take upon himself. And the Bible says that he offered incense upon the altar of the Lord. That's a no-no for a king. He's not allowed to do that. He's not allowed to take that position upon himself. But that's what he did, Second Chronicles 26 and verse number 16. On that day, on that day, the king was withstood by the high priest along with 80 other priests, came and stood face to face with King Uzziah and told him that he was wrong, that you're not allowed to do that, that this is not your office, this is not your place. I'm thankful for men who, who are willing to stand up to men in power. I'm thankful for for people that just say, listen, I don't care who is doing wrong. Wrong is always wrong. Right is always right, no matter who's doing it. And that's what these priests did. They stood up to Uzziah, though he was the king, though he had been the king for 50 plus years, here were some men that stood up to him and withstood him. But more importantly on this day, he was not just withstood by priests, but on this day he was withstood by God himself. The Bible tells us that the judgment for Uzziah for doing what he had done was that God smote him with the dreaded disease of leprosy. And he, and he suffered from that to the day of his death. Second Chronicles 26, verses 17 to 21. So that's the life of Uzziah. It gives you a little bit more insight when you see that name and you know a little bit more about the, maybe behind the scenes, what was happening. And Isaiah's position as a prophet would more than likely have brought him into some form of contact and relationship with this king, Uzziah. And some even, some Bible scholars even believe that the two might have been related. There is a a thought that based on the ending of their names, Uzziah ends with an I-A-H and Isaiah ends with an I-A-H. Is it possible that that's a, a family type of a thing and that that might have made a connection that maybe they were some distant type of cousins? We don't necessarily know, but here's what we do know. It seems as though the tragic ending of Uzziah's life brought Isaiah into a deeper and more dependent fellowship and relationship with God. Perhaps Isaiah was struck with this thought. I'm just wondering, as I just let my mind wander a little bit, was Isaiah thinking, as he watches the end of Uzziah's life, is he thinking this? Is he thinking if Uzziah could so miserably fail after 50 plus years of faithfulness and service to God, so could I? Do you think that maybe that that might have crossed his mind? As As he's a younger man, more than likely, Isaiah 6, I think we're in the younger, earlier portion of his ministry. And Isaiah is looking ahead, and he has fondness for the king, because the king is a godly man. That certainly makes Isaiah's job a little bit easier. And yet, as Uzziah fails at the end of his life, he's an old man. And sometimes we think, well, you know, old people, you know, they've been faithful all these years. They're just destined to finish strong and to finish well. But that's not always the case. And is it possible that Isaiah thought, well, my soul, if, if Uzziah, after f- more than 50 years of exemplary service to God, if he could fall and if he could fail at the end of his life, well, then I could do the same thing. And perhaps maybe that thought drove him further and further into resting upon the arms of Almighty God. It could be that maybe, maybe the death of Uzziah, that maybe Isaiah was struck with the certainty of death. 
that no matter who you are, I mean, here's the king, king of 50 plus years. And the king of 50 plus years probably had the best health care imaginable. And yet, and yet when it was his time to go, it was his time to go. That maybe that's what, that, that's what struck Isaiah during this point. Or, or maybe, maybe, it was on the, maybe he was struck by the thought of the brevity of life. Isn't life so short? Uh, can you hardly believe, I can't hardly believe that the kids are back in school. I, I just can't hardly believe that. It, it feels like the summer is, you know, it's, it's like anything else. Vacations always go faster than work weeks, don't they? I don't know why that is, but it's just a, it is just a, it's just a, fact of life. You know, the vacation is, is here and it is gone. The work week is like, you know, I'll see you in three years on Friday. You know, it's just, it's just the way that it goes. And, and so, so perhaps Isaiah is thinking about the brevity of life. He's thinking about just how quickly. It wasn't all that long ago that Uzziah was, you know, given the coronation to, to be the king and, 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 and he was doing great things and he was developing strength and, and maybe he was struck by the brevity of life or maybe, maybe he was struck by the reality of the afterlife. I, I don't know about you, but I, I've noticed this, that when, when someone close to me dies, heaven becomes that much more real. Uh, do, you, do you understand what I'm talking about? I, I think my, my, first, my first brush, I suppose, with with death in a, in a really close way. It was in 2007, my grandfather died. It's my mom's dad, and he died in late August of 2007, so we're coming on the 15-year anniversary of his passing. And, um, you know, I, I just can't, I can't fully explain it, but for, as, for me as a young man, that was sort of the first, you know, experience of someone that I was really close to, I mean, really close to, as, as far as family members close to. And I just, I just couldn't get over the thought that he's there. He's there, because he had a faith in Christ. He's on the other side and, and, and thinking of what it must be like and, 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 and it just, I don't know, it just made heaven and, and maybe even God become that much more real to me when there was someone that I knew personally, someone that I loved deeply who was there. And perhaps maybe Isaiah is wrestling with all of these things. And here's what I've discovered. I have discovered that in each of these types of scenarios uh, that, that, that death strikes or that something difficult happens in our life, a, a, a life-altering sequence of events, whatever it may be, in, in these moments it seems to me as if God becomes that much more real to to me, and and I and, I, and I, in these moments, I, I I believe I believe in I mean I always I, I believe in the Lord, no doubt about it. But when I'm dealing with something like this, and all I have is Him, He, he just He just seems more real to me. And that doesn't mean that He's He's not there at every moment of my life. I'm just talking from a human fleshly perspective. And it doesn't surprise me that the death of Uzziah leads Isaiah into this, into this moment in which he's closer to God and he sees God in a more visible and a more real way than he's ever been before because that sort of aligns with what my experience has been that in the difficult and challenging moments of life, this, this life and this world becomes less and less important and it becomes less and less in view and, and, and God and his presence in his throne room and his home becomes that much more real to me. I think that might be what Isaiah is trying to hint at here in this text. And Here's what we need to understand. We often resist the trials of life. But listen, it is in these trials in which, in which we often have an opportunity to see God that much more clearly. Paul wrote similarly in this book of 2 Corinthians chapter number 12. 
he said that during seasons of crisis and during seasons of problems or difficulties, that there, is, there seems to be an increased awareness and an, an increased availability for the power of Christ to rest upon us. I think the next slide shows the passage, 2 Corinthians 12, verse number 9. And of course, this is the passage in which Paul deals with his thorn in the flesh. And he asked God to remove it from him. He said, this trial is too much. I can do so much more for you and for your cause without it. And, and notice what God said to him. And he, that's speaking of God, said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. You know, Paul came to an incredible conclusion. I think we need to come to the same conclusion. That oftentimes the things that we're running from the most, the things that most fill our hearts with dread, are the very things, are the very things that God, that, that God is going to use to draw us that much closer and that much more deeper into a relationship with him. That Listen, think about this, that God has purpose for even the scars of our lives. Now there's a purpose in these things. Oh, no doubt, the death of Uzziah, a great king, a great king, not just his death, but the, the events that preceded his death. Those things, listen, those things were scars to the nation of, of, of Judah. And yet, and yet, God used those scars. God used those difficult moments and enabled Isaiah to see God more clearly. Now, you may be in a particularly difficult season of life right now. I want to encourage you, don't, don't begrudge this. Don't run from this. Don't be in fear of this. It, it just may be that in this season, God intends to, to be more real and to show more of himself to you than he would otherwise. Number two, I discover from this chapter and this vision, here's a, here's a prevailing thought. I think it's all over this particular text is this, that most spiritual men fade when compared or in the presence of a holy God. The most spiritual men of all fade when compared or in the presence of a holy God. Isaiah, at the time of this vision, was already a prophet. I mean, we have five chapters prior to Isaiah chapter number six in which Isaiah is speaking on behalf of the Lord and he is preaching his message and, 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 and we have that revealed to us here in this text. So, so this, is not, this is not out of order chronologically. Isaiah six shouldn't really be Isaiah chapter number one. No, this is, a, this is a deeper level in which God is calling Isaiah. He's revealing more of himself to him uh, in this chapter. And so we, we already have a man who is a, a God-ordained, God-called, respected prophet. Prophets were men that were called by God to proclaim his message to God's audience. We presume, we presume certainly that God called men with some semblance of piety about them. Now, don't misunderstand what we're saying here. We, we understand prophets were still flawed and broken men like the rest of us. That, that Isaiah was still a sinner. The Bible says, the Bible says about Elijah, one of the great characters of the Old Testament, that he was subject to like passions as we are. It just, it just simply means that he could get frustrated, he could lose his temper, he could deal with depression, he could deal with deep sorrow and sadness, that he was just like you and me, and so is Isaiah. 
And yet, and yet we understand that these men would have been men of, of, of faithfulness. They would have been men of character and integrity. And so understand who we're dealing with here. We're dealing with Isaiah, a very spiritual man. And yet one day, one day he's able to see this vision. He sees a holy God. And the Bible, literally, according to his own words, he says, I am undone. I am undone. I am, I am taken apart piece by piece. I am not nearly as spiritual and nearly as holy as I once thought that I was. No, after this vision in which Isaiah sees a holy God, he is impressed. He is moved by this thought, and that is this, just how inadequate he is. The revelation of God to Isaiah highlights the following things, and they're found in our text. Number one, he sees God in this vision, and he discovers, number one, that God is high above his creation. Verse number one, the Bible says that I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. God is sitting in this scene that Isaiah is given. It's always a picture of a king who is at rest after having subdued those under and those around him. Sitting is a position of relaxation. It's a position of rest. Standing walking, running, whatever it might be, is a position of of advancement and of aggression. But I sit down, I sit down when my work is done, when I have subdued those things that are under me to be subdued. That's when I sit down. And it is not a mistake, it is not a mistake that Isaiah sees God and he is sitting upon this throne. Because he has done, he has done what he needs to do. He has subdued those things that are under him. He is on a throne, which also pictures royalty and majesty. And finally, the Bible tells us that he is high and lifted up. Understand this, that God is always in a lofty place. He is far above the creatures that he is responsible for creating. And even we find in verse number one, we find that even his robe is superior as it completely, the Bible says, fills the temple, which was a massive building. We're talking about Solomon's temple here. The Bible says about God's train or his robe that it filled, it completely filled the temple. This is who God is. This is the vision that Isaiah gets of God, that he is high above his creation. But secondly, he is attended by, an ange- by angelic ser- servants. Verse number two, the Bible says, above it, above the throne, above God sitting upon a throne, there in the heights of the temple, above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, with two or twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. Above the throne of God fly seraphim. I, I have in my notes some details about seraphim, and I just don't know that we have time to get into it today. But let me just make these few comments. These seraphim fly, and they're given six wings. With these wings, they cover their face. Don't miss, don't miss what God is saying here. And what Isaiah is seeing here, they covered their face, a a, a reference to the reverence and awe inspired by their close proximity to God. Don't you love these people that, you know, when I see God, I'm gonna ask him this, and I'm gonna tell him this, and I'm gonna, I, I just have to tell you, if the seraphim cover their face before God, refuse to even look upon him because he is so holy and he is so reverent, what makes you think you're gonna ask God anything? I think, I think, I think, listen, the seraphim cover their face, they're not saying anything, and neither are you, and neither am I. 
There's something so impressive about being in the very presence of God. Then with two of their wings, they cover their feet. Again, this is meant to cover the body and lower extremities. Uh, Again, uh, once again, certainly a reference to God's holiness, but also a reference to a desire to be appropriate and covered in God's presence. We're missing that in our culture today, aren't we? The people give very little thought to how they present themselves. And as a result, we're living in a very immodest and an inappropriate culture. So that's the world we're living in. Well, listen, we should expect that kind of behavior from the world. They don't know God. But listen, but listen, when people get to know God, they cover themselves. That's what the seraphim did. I mean, when they're in God's presence, they, 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 they covered their feet, which is a reference to, again, the lower part of their body, that, that, that they were covered, that, uh, that, that they were in God's presence, and they wanted to be appropriate in God's presence. And with two of these wings, the Bible says that they flew. And so here's the vision. Here's the vision. God is high and is lifted up. God is attended to by angelic servants. But notice, thirdly, we discover that in God's presence, there is continual praise. In other words, you might wonder, well, what does it look like to see God on his throne? Well, there you go. He's sitting. He has angels around him. They're covered. They're constantly hovering over him. He is high and lifted up. His robe, his robe fills a massive building. It fills this temple. But notice, notice what else. In his presence, there's continual praise. Look in verse number three. And one cried unto another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The use of the word holy being repeated three times is maybe, maybe a reference to the Trinity. Holy is God the Father. Holy is God the Son. Holy is God the Spirit. But it's also in line with how the Jews communicated. We find, we find several instances in which they would repeat the same phrase over and over and over again. But this is a continual chorus or, uh, or, or, or sound of praise. The, the seraphim continually b- bombard God with praise and adoration. The word holy, it means sacred or set apart. And not only, listen, is God in position high above us. He's in heaven and we're here on this earth. But listen, in character, in character, he is high above us as well. He is holy, holy, holy. And what am I? I think you know the answer to that. I am unholy, unholy, unholy. Notice number four, in God's presence, there are demonstrations of his power. In God's presence, there are demonstrations of his power. As you look in verse number four, the Bible says, and the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. With every shout of holy, the doors of the temple. Again, we're talking about a massive building. The doors of the temple uh, would, would, would move. They would shake. Uh, the temple, again, one of the great buildings ever to be constructed, that it would shake so easily is a reminder of God's awesome and incredible power. A cloud, the Bible says, accompanied God throughout the Old Testament. He led his people with a pillar of cloud by day through the days of the Exodus. When God met with Moses on Mount Sinai, a cloud hovered over the mountain signifying God's presence and when the temple was dedicated a cloud filled the temple once again signifying God's presence and so every time we see God there listen there are visible demonstrations or manifestations of his power number five in God's presence is an increased awareness of man's brokenness In God's presence, when you really, listen, when you really see God for who he is, you no longer see yourself as being all that impressive. In God's presence is an increased awareness 
of man's brokenness. In verse number five, Isaiah's words, woe is me, for I am undone. Remember what, remember what we said in 1 Corinthians chapter number one? What, 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 did, what did God say? That no flesh should glory in his presence. Isaiah's in his presence. We would think of Isaiah as being an impressive, a noble figure or character, and yet, and yet when Isaiah gets in the presence of God, not only is he not glorying, but he is instead, he is saying, woe is me, cursed is me, broken is me, I am undone. God, you have taken me apart. God, you have, uh, you have exposed me for who I really, truly am. Though Isaiah was a spiritual man, he was moved by just how, un- how broken he was. He's particularly taken in our text, he's particularly taken with the uncleanness of his lips. Here's what he felt. He he heard the seraphim as they were praising and glorifying God. And Isaiah felt he could not join the praise of the seraphim. He felt like he was unworthy to shout with the seraphim, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Didn't feel like he could say it. Didn't feel like he could do it. He says, because I'm I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Job 42, verses 5 and 6 says, I have heard of thee. By the hearing of the ear. But now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Do you know what the previous 41 chapters of the book of Job are? The previous 41 chapters are Job justifying himself. And at the end of the book, last four or five chapters, at the end of the book, God shows up and God begins to reveal himself to Job. And you know what the end result is? The end result is is the scripture that was there a moment ago. I abhor myself. I repent in dust and ashes. Why? Why? Because he said, I'd heard about him with the hearing of the ear. But when I saw him, with the seeing of the eye. When I saw him with my own eyes, when I knew who he really was, I understood just how broken and just how undone I am. In God's presence is an increased awareness of brokenness, but can I say, number six, that in God's presence, man's sin and iniquity is purged. Listen, in God's presence, if your sin and your iniquity is going to be taken away, it only, it only, it only happens as we come into the presence of God and we believe on him and we place our faith and our trust in him. The Bible says in verse number six that one of the seraphim came unto Isaiah and he had a live coal in his hand. He had taken it with the tongs from off the altar and he touched his mouth with this coal. And then he says, your sin is purged, your iniquity is purged. And as a result, Isaiah then was able to speak in God's presence. He was able to join with the praise of the seraphim. When Adam was discovered to have been rebellious and disobedient, what did he do? He hid from God's presence. We know that, Genesis chapter number three. Can I say that's usually man's response when, when he ends up making a huge mistake as he, as he runs far away from God. But I want you to know something. That's the last thing you need to do. Well, listen, when you sin and your life is full of iniquity, you don't run away from God. Here's what you need to do. You need to run to God because in his presence, in, it's the only place, it's the only place that your sin and your iniquity can be removed from you. You run away from God and you continue, like, like the scripture reading at the beginning of the service, Cain, he, he ran from God. He refused to repent. He stayed in rebellion. And, and, and yet, if he would have run to God, there would have been a place of grace. No, listen, don't, don't run. Don't run from him. Run to him instead. Because it's in that place in God's presence where man's iniquity and his sin is purged. Are you here today and you're far away from God? 
and you're overwhelmed by the sin and the brokenness of your life, what you need to do is you need to run to Christ today. You need to run to Christ today where he will meet you. He will meet you with open arms. He certainly is mighty to save. Lastly and finally, number three, when a man truly sees God, the only acceptable response is surrender. In verse number eight, after this vision, he said, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Notice his response. Then said I, here am I, send me. The question rings out throughout history. God's looking, God's looking, isn't he? He's looking for those who will go forward for him. I want you to know this is not limited to a preacher or a prophet. You may be sitting here and say, say, you know, God, I don't need to surrender to God. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a preacher. It's not limited to those things. David wasn't a pastor or preacher. He wasn't even a prophet. Gideon wasn't either. Solomon wasn't. And yet God used them mightily in his work. Others throughout Scripture, others throughout history, not necessarily preachers or prophets, and yet God clearly called and, and they surrendered the Lord's will for their lives. Listen, Isaiah did not need to be manipulated. He did not need to be coerced. He did not need to be strong-armed to do the Lord's will. He simply needed to see God for who he was. And when he did, there would be surrender and willingness to follow the Lord's leading, though the task that God was calling him to do was not a pleasant or an enjoyable one. May God take us through this book through this chapter, through the life of Isaiah, into his very throne room so that we can see him for who he really is. And when we do, when we do, we will see ourselves for who we really are. And at the end of that, we will have no problem whatsoever surrendering to his bidding to do whatever it is that he's created and designed us to do. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment.